Well, let's begin our topic tonight with another word of prayer. Oh, loving Father, I want to thank you so much for this day, the day where we can come together and we can talk about the judgment. And Lord, this is a a complicated topic. And Lord, I don't even know if I'm fully prepared for this topic. So I'm just praying for grace and mercy, and I'm praying that your Holy Spirit would guide my heart and mind and my tongue. And Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, and that Lord, your Holy Spirit would speak to every heart and mind here, and you would make it as simple as possible so that we can all truly understand this subject. Lord, we want to know the truth, and we want the truth to set us free. And so our prayer is that the Holy Spirit does that work and helps us to get it. We need it to be simple. And you promise us that even a little child can understand. And so we're asking for that help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Our topic tonight is Revelation's Judgment Hour, and I want to go straight to the Bible. Let's go to Revelation chapter 14. And we are going to look at a couple of verses here. We're going to look at verse 6 and 7. Notice what the Bible says. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And so here we see this message that is going to be given to the entire world, isn't it? It's going to be given to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. That's pretty much everybody, isn't it? I find that very interesting because there are some verses in the Bible that are just strictly for men. There are some that are just strictly for women. There are some that are just for the Jews, some just for the Gentiles, some for a beginner, and some for a person who has walked with the Lord for many years. But this particular passage... And this message is of paramount importance to all of the world. And it uses this symbolism of angel messengers to impress our minds with its importance. And by the way, the word angel that is translated from the original language is the word messenger. And it literally means a messenger. And so I don't think that this is talking about a literal angel flying around in the sky uh, giving a sermon to those who he passes by. This this is uh, something different. But I want to ask you a question. Who in the Bible is given the commission to give the gospel to the world? It's the church, right? God's people. The the great commission from Jesus was go into all the world and preach the good news, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And so when we see these messengers, I believe that this is talking about a message that's going to be coming from God's church at the end of time. And those who have the everlasting gospel is the church. And this is the message that they're giving at that time. It's a message that calls people to fear God and give glory to Him. Why? Because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who created all things. 
And what we're seeing here, too, is something important. Notice that it says they have the everlasting gospel, right? In other words, this is the gospel message, but it is the gospel message in the context of present truth. And do you know what I mean by present truth? It is a truth that applies to a specific time. Now let me give you an example of this. You'll remember that Noah preached the everlasting gospel, but he preached it in the context of present truth, right? And what was the most important truth of Noah's time? There's a flood coming and you need to get in the boat, right? That was the present truth. That was the most important message for Noah's day. That boat represented Christ as our ark of safety and we need to get in the boat. He gave the everlasting gospel message, but He gave it in the context of the most important truth of that time. And I believe that's exactly what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 14 with this uh, messenger's message that He is giving. And He's giving the gospel message. It's the same gospel that Jesus lived for us. He died for us. He rose again and He's gone to heaven and He is our advocate there before the Father. But it is given in the context of what is happening in the world at that time. And it is a message that needs to be heard by the entire world. I want you to go back to my example of Noah and imagine for a moment that Noah's got this big boat he's building and he's got all of these people that are coming from all over the place and they're looking at the... and they're just going, what's this crazy guy doing, right? But Noah's been preaching. The Bible says he preached for 120 years. And so just imagine that Noah's got himself a little a platform there and all the people are coming around and Noah comes off of the boat and, and they're all looking at it and he comes down and he says to them, oh man, I'm so glad that you're all here because uh, starting today, I'm going to start preaching a 10-part series on family values. Now, what do you think that the people would have said? They'd have said, that's nice, Noah. It's, it's always good to preach about family values, but what about the boat? Right? What's that all about? That was present truth and that was the everlasting gospel that Noah was given. And I believe that this message in Revelation chapter 14 does that same thing. It helps the church to recognize the context in which the everlasting gospel should be presented to the world at the end of time. It is a special context and the urgency that inspires the call to fear God and give glory to Him is because His judgment has come, right? The hour of His judgment has come. Now, when does this judgment take place? That's a great question, isn't it? We want to answer that question tonight. Notice in Acts 17, verse 31, that the Apostle says, He, that is God, has appointed a day on which He... What's that word? On, on which He will judge the world. And so here we see the Apostle pointing forward to a time when God will judge the world, right? Then if you go to Acts chapter 24 and verse 25, Paul is speaking to the governor Felix, and notice what the Bible says. 
Now has he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call on you. So Paul was reasoning with Felix about the judgment that was to come. And so Paul is pointing out in the future, isn't he? The judgment hasn't happened yet, but it's the judgment to come. And so in the days of the apostles, the judgment was still future, right? But notice what Jesus says in Revelation 22, 12. And behold, I am coming quickly and my what? My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Now think about that word reward for a minute. What I think that this is saying is that something has to happen. There has to be a reckoning. There has to be some kind of an accounting that happens before Jesus comes in order to determine who gets what reward, right? In other words, there has to be a judgment that happens before Jesus comes or else how does Jesus know who to give eternal life to or to give destruction to, right? Does that make sense? So sometime after the apostles who were pointing forward to judgment and sometime before the second coming of Christ, there has to be this judgment. Because Christ, when He comes, that judgment has already been made, and so He gives His reward to the righteous by giving them eternal life, and He gives His reward to the wicked by destroying them by the brightness of His coming. So that, that judgment has to happen before He comes. There's no way that He can give a reward or bring a reward with Him unless that has already been determined who gets what. Right? Now, what is the significance then is that there are three messages that have to be given before Jesus comes. And we just looked at that first message. Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7. The first, one, first message is fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And then the second message is Babylon is fallen. And this is not talking about literal Babylon. This is talking about spiritual Babylon. And we are going to talk about that on Thursday night. And so I hope you'll be here for that. And then the third message is that you don't want to receive the mark of the beast. And it's the most fearful warning in all of the Bible. And we're going to talk about that on Saturday at noon. And so I hope you'll be there for those. But these are these three messages that have to be given to the whole world. It is the everlasting gospel in the context of these three important events right before the coming of Jesus. And that first angel message says, the hour of His judgment is coming. Is that what it said? No, it said the hour of His judgment has come, right? In other words, it has arrived. And so here we see that John the Revelator reveals a time when the judgment is no longer pending, but when the judgment has arrived. 
And that is a time when God's people are sharing with the world that this judgment has already begun. Now let's see if we can figure out when that happens. Romans chapter 2 verse 5 says, You are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and what? And revelation of the righteous judgment to come. Or the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each one according to his deeds. When Jesus comes on the day of wrath, it will be a revelation of the judgment that has already been made. He is going to reveal the reward of the righteous and the wicked. And so when He comes, His reward is with Him. It has already been determined through that judgment that has to occur before Jesus comes. And this is why people in the last day are preaching this everlasting gospel and saying that the hour of His judgment has come. It is a warning of a time of judgment that has already arrived. And in light of this fact, it is calling people back to the worship of the Creator on the day that He set aside for worship and as a memorial of His creation. Worship Him who made heaven and earth. It's a call back to following God and keeping His commandments rather than following the teachings of men and the commandments of men. And this may sound a little bit different to you from anything that you've heard before because most popular teaching today is that the judgment happens after He comes, right? But let's think about how judgment works for a minute. There are several phases of judgment. And the first thing that has to happen in order for there to be a judgment is there has to be a charge or an accusation, right? You cannot have a judgment unless there is a charge. And of course, we all know that we all have an accuser, don't we? And Satan is accusing us of being a sinner and so we already have that taken care of. There's already a charge against us. And then the second phase is that there has to be a trial, right? And what happens in a trial? The evidence is presented, right? It has to be revealed uh, what that evidence is of, of that accusation. And then the third is that there has to be a verdict. And the verdict is what determines whether you are guilty or innocent. And then the fourth is there has to be a sentence. It has to be a reward that is identified that you're going to receive. And then the last thing is that that sentence has to be executed. It has to be handed out or meted out. And it's interesting when we look at these, we see that the charge is there for everyone, but the trial, the verdict, and the sentence all has to happen before Jesus comes back to the earth because He is bringing with Him His reward, which is the execution of the sentence. You're either going to be rewarded with eternal life or you're going to be rewarded with destruction. And we just need to remember that the unrighteous are not going to receive their final execution until 
after the thousand years, right? When they are raised from the dead and they come against the city of God and fire comes down from God out of heaven and destroys them. But ultimately, that execution of the sentence there must be some judgment that precedes that. Now, let's look at the judgment in Bible prophecy. Turn with me to the companion book of Revelation. You remember what that is? The book of Daniel in the Old Testament, right? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. That's going to be page 1029 in your seminar Bible. Daniel chapter 7, and I'd like you to notice what it says starting in verse 8. Daniel chapter 7, verse 8 says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now we've already talked about this little horn quite a bit, haven't we? We saw that this little horn came up in Daniel chapter 7 out of the fourth beast, right? And we identified that fourth beast as Rome. And so this little horn has to proceed out of Rome. And we also saw that he came up among the ten divisions of Rome, which were identified by the ten horns. And so we talked about this and we saw that this could be nothing else than the Roman papacy. And we saw that they uh, ruled the world with both political and religious power for 1,260 years. We saw that that time period began in 538 A.D. and it went that 1,260 years which took us to 1798. And then you'll remember that the Bible said that it was going to receive a deadly wound, right? And you remember how we talked about Napoleon sending his general Berthier in to take the Pope captive and they lost that civil power or that political power. They still had religious power over the Catholic Church but no longer had political power. But then we also saw that that deadly wound would be healed, didn't we? And that at the end of time, once again, that little horn was going to gain in prominence. And we see that happening right before us today, don't we? We talked about how just this last year, that for the first time in the history of the United States, that a pope came and spoke to our Congress. He is gaining in political power and in prominence. And uh, the Bible also shows us that he's going to be there all the way to the end of time. But I want you to notice what it says starting in verse 9. It says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. 
Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, here we see, and that was a lot of reading there, but I hope that you caught that we saw a judgment scene in there, right? And I want you to notice that the verse before that, we were just talking about the little horn, weren't we? So here we see that this little horn is still around during the judgment, right? And this little horn is this earthly power. And so in other words, things are just continuously going on on earth while this judgment scene is being set up. Did you catch that? It's at the same time. Now, this is a very broad passage, but we see here this judgment scene. It's pretty evident from the fact that we see that there are thrones that are set into place, and then it says, and the court was seated and the books were opened. So clearly this is a judgment scene, isn't it? Now, at the conclusion of this scene then, you see the Son of Man who is who? Jesus, that's right. He receives the everlasting kingdom right after this judgment. He gets that from the Father. And this is talking about that period when the judgment will occur where ultimately it is determined who is going to receive the reward of the righteous and who is going to receive the reward of the unrighteous. And when He receives His kingdom... He is then going to return to the earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords. But while He is there in heaven, He's our high priest, right? He is there as our intercessor, as our advocate. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But the point that we have here is that He is in heaven now advocating on our behalf. But at the conclusion of the judgment... There's no more advocating. He takes off his priestly robes and he puts on his kingly robes and he comes back as the king of kings and lord of lords. And a king doesn't advocate for anyone. He just simply hands out rewards, right? And so he's bringing that execution of the judgment with him. Now, we know that Jesus is going to receive a kingdom, right? In Luke chapter 1, verse 31 through 33, it says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so clearly we see that Jesus is going to receive a kingdom, don't we? Notice what it says in Luke 19 verse 12. Jesus was speaking in a parable and he said a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return now who was that nobleman that jesus was talking about he was talking about himself he is the nobleman that was going to go to a far country and where did he go he went to heaven right he is there to receive the kingdom and then When he receives the kingdom, he returns to this earth as 
King of kings and lords of lords. Now, there are many passages that relate to this, but I'm, I'm just going to stop right there. And if you have any more questions about that, you can just ask those questions later. But we realize that Jesus has to cease his mediatorial work, his intercessory work, before he comes back. Because when he comes back, he comes back as a king. Now, let's look at what Daniel chapter 7, verse 10 says. It says, The court was seated and the books were open. Now, I'd like you to notice Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 says something very similar. Notice what it says. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. Now, I want to talk about that verse for a minute because I want us to put our thinking caps on, right? It says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. How can it be possible that the dead can stand before God if they're sleeping in the grave, right? So we can't think about this literally. We have to think about it spiritually, right? And so how do you stand before God? Well, it gave us the answer. It said because the books were opened, right? There is a record of your life in heaven and that record is going to be presented in the judgment. And so then it says, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And then notice this, the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. And so your record book is there in heaven. And during that judgment, you're here on the earth. You're either dead in the grave or you're one of that group that's alive at the end of time. But your record is there and it's presented in that judgment. And God and the angels are going through that. And Jesus is there as your advocate. Now, before I go too far... Some people might say, well, hold on a minute, Pastor. I thought we were saved by faith. Well, you're right. We are. The Bible says we are saved by grace through faith, but we will be judged according to our works. And the Bible is very clear on that. And the reason for that is, in order to determine the sincerity of your faith, we have to look at your actions. Because everyone in this room, we can all say, well, yeah, I believe in God, right? Yeah, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But your actions are either going to prove that or they're going to disprove that, aren't they? And so you will be saved by grace through faith, but you're going to be judged according to your works. And we can go through several texts on that point. But let me ask you the question, what is it that is written in these books. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, He will reward each according to His what? His works. So guess what? Your works are being recorded in the books of heaven. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus said, For every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So guess what? 
every word that you say throughout your life is being recorded in the books of heaven. Do you think then it would be important for us to be careful what we say? Absolutely. The average person speaks enough words in one week to fill a book of 320 pages. And remember what James said about uh, taming the tongue? Right? Jesus was very clear that this is an important part of the judgment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so all of your actions are being recorded in the books of heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says, He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the what? The motives of men's hearts. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14 says something very similar. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. So guess what, friends? Even your motives are being recorded in the books of heaven. Not just your works, not just your actions or your words, but even your motives are being recorded. Well, that brings up a question then. What is the standard in the judgment? I mean, if we are going to be judged by what we say, what we do, what we think, how we act, what's going to be the standard that we are going to be judged against, right? That's a very important question that we want to know. But notice what James says, chapter 2, verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the what? The law of liberty. And if you go back to James chapter 2 and you look at the preceding verses, you'll see that he's talking about uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery. Where do we see those words? In the Decalogue, right? In the Ten Commandments. And so the Ten Commandments are the standard in the judgment. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13 and 14 says, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so the commandments in Ecclesiastes and James are spoken of as the standard by which we are going to be judged. The commandments go further than just outward actions too, don't they? Jesus said if you even look at someone lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And so that's how it goes into the motives of of the heart, right? Including every secret thing. Friends, you can't hide anything from God. Every secret thing is going to be bare before Him. And so symbolically, you're standing there naked before the Creator of the world and your life is being compared to the standard of the Ten Commandments. And we are going to be standing before a pure and holy law of liberty, and we are going to have our lives judged by it. And we're going to talk about that more as we go through tonight. But I don't want to leave you hopeless tonight either. So let's talk about another question. Where does the judgment take place? I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 122. That's going to be page 711 in your seminar Bible. And let's read verses 1 through 5. 
Psalm 122, verse 1 says, I was glad when they said to me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is what? Compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones are set there for judgment the thrones of the house of David. Now, we need to key in on that one verse that said that the city is compact together. If you go to the land of Israel today and you look at the city of Jerusalem, it's not compact, right? But if you go and you look in uh, Revelation chapter 21 and 22 and you see that new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, it's a compact city. It's 340 miles on each side square compact right so this is clearly talking about the new jerusalem in heaven and then it said there in verse 5 for thrones are set there for judgment and so here we see from this passage that the judgment is taking place in heaven do you see that and i'd like you to notice what the judgment does turn with me to daniel chapter 7 it's going to be page 1030 in your seminar Bible. And notice what it says in verse 21. It says, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. And so this is that little horn that we've been talking about. This is the papal power that would reign until 1798 and then receive that deadly wound but then have that wound healed and once again be prominent in the end of time and this power is making war against God's people and prevailing against them notice what it says in verse 22 until he was prevailing against them until the ancient of days came and a what a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the most high and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom and so when this judgment is concluded and the time comes for the saints to possess the kingdom, the little horn is finished. Right? The prospering of the little horn is over. The judgment is what overthrows the little horn because he was prevailing against God's people until God made a judgment. Right? And so it's the judgment that overthrows the power of the little horn. The judgment is what takes away the dominion of the Antichrist. Now look in verse 25 and 26. It says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into His hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away His dominion to consume and destroy it forever. And so we see here That it is the judgment that ultimately puts the nail in the coffin, if you will, on the little horn. The judgment is what takes away the dominion of the Antichrist. Now, I want you to remember what we talked about already. And that is that Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel chapter 8 are parallel prophecies. You remember talking about that? All right. So we saw in all three of those chapters that for 
world-reigning empires were identified, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now, let's look at what takes away the dominion of that little horn in Daniel chapter 8. Notice what it says in Daniel 8. This is a parallel prophecy to what we just read in 7. And notice what it says in verse 9 through 12. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. So here we see it's a parallel prophecy. It's still talking about the little horn, talking about the Antichrist or the papacy. And it grew up to the host of heaven and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalts himself as high as the prince of the host and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Now, what I think it's saying here is you know how the Bible is pretty clear that we only have one advocate between us and God, and that's Jesus Christ. But by casting the sanctuary to the ground, what that's saying is that the church is now teaching that rather than going directly to God, now you need to go to an earthly priest to get your absolution or to get forgiveness of your sins. Right, And so that's what it's saying. It's bringing the sanctuary down by saying you don't have to go up. You just go right over here to one of the priests. Look at verse 12 again. It says, Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. He cast truth down to the ground. He did all of this and what? And prospered. He actually prospers while he's casting truth down to the ground, but notice what happens next. Look at verse 13. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? In other words, there's one angel talking to another angel and saying, how long is the truth going to be able to be cast down to the ground? How long are the people going to be kept in this system of error? How long is this going to go on? And the answer is then given in verse 14 when he says, and he said unto me for 2,300 days, then what? shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Notice what it says there. Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So what overthrows that little horn in Daniel chapter 8? The cleansing of the sanctuary, right? So if Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 are parallel prophecies, And we see that in Daniel chapter 7, it's the judgment that overthrows the little horn. And we see in Daniel chapter 8 that it's the cleansing of the sanctuary that overthrows the little horn. Then what are we seeing? We're seeing that the cleansing of the sanctuary and the judgment are the exact same event. You with me? I want to show this to you. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about this. And I wish we had more time. But I'm going to go through it very briefly. 
But we need to start by asking a question. And that question is, what is the cleansing of the sanctuary? I have here an aerial view of the earthly tabernacle. And you'll see here this outer line, that is that fenced area, and inside that was called the courtyard. And if you come in through the entrance into the courtyard, the first thing that you see is the brazen altar. That's where they sacrifice the animals. Then that circle is the laver where the priests would wash their hands. And then you go into the sanctuary and the first compartment is the holy place and you'll see three articles of furniture there. You see the table of showbread on the right. You see the altar of incense straight ahead and then that seven branch candlestick on the left. And then there's the second compartment which is the most holy place and there's just one article of furniture here and that is the Ark of the Covenant. And you'll remember that the mercy seat is over the Ark And then you have an angel on each end of that with their wings out. And then the Shekinah glory of God would reside between the cherubim. And we saw before several verses that talk about God dwelling between the cherubim. But do you remember what's inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments, that's right. Now, let's just talk about this for a second. I want you to notice that in Israel, the Levitical sacrificial system was set up that every morning and every evening they would have sacrifices. That was done by the Levite priest. And then also you could have individuals bringing their own sacrifice. But what they did is they would bring their lamb into the courtyard And then the sinner or the priest, if it was the morning or evening sacrifice, would place their hand on the lamb. And what they would do is they would confess their sins and symbolically the sins would pass from the person to the lamb. And then the other priest would come and cut the throat of the lamb and they would catch the blood in a bowl. And that blood then would symbolically be the transporter for your sin. And so, notice what Leviticus 17.11 says. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Right? And so that's what that represented. The blood represented life. And so, it in this case, would represent a sinful life. Right? Because you transferred your sin to that animal. And so you would bring your animal in and they would sacrifice it and collect the blood. They would burn the body of the lamb on the altar and then the priest would carry that sin-filled blood into the holy place and he would sprinkle that blood on the altar of incense and symbolically your sin is transferred into the sanctuary. Now you can imagine that as they're doing this twice a day, morning and evening, plus all of the people of Israel are bringing their sin offerings, you can imagine that all of these sins just keep coming into the sanctuary and keep piling up in there symbolically, right? I mean, obviously you don't see those, but but that's what's happening. And now all of those sins are polluting the sanctuary, 
right? And so you have to be able to deal with that. And so once a year, at the end of the Jewish year, was the Day of Atonement, right? Now, let me explain to you what happens on the Day of Atonement. Notice what it says in Leviticus 16.30. For on that day, that's the Day of Atonement, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all of your sins before the Lord. And so the purpose of making atonement was for the cleansing of the people, right? And if we're going to be clean before the Lord, then we have to have that atonement. We have to have that cleansing. But it also says in 32 through 33, and the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen cloths and the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. So what we see here is that that day of atonement did a whole bunch of things, didn't it? It made atonement for the people, but it also, which is simply saying it cleansed the people, but it also cleansed the sanctuary. Because remember, the sanctuary had all of these sins being piled up in there day after day after day throughout the whole year. And so now the sanctuary is polluted, and now on the Day of Atonement, we're going to clean the sanctuary. And so atonement is just another way of saying that now you are at one with God, right? You're made right with God again. And so on that day, the people were cleansed and the sanctuary was cleansed. Now, let me show you how this works on the day of atonement. It's quite different than it is every other day of the year because every other day of the year, you bring a sheep, an animal, a lamb, and you confess your sins on it. But on the Day of Atonement, they don't bring a lamb, they bring two goats. And they look identical. You can't even hardly tell the difference between them. But then they cast lots, and they determine that one is the Lord's goat, and the other one is the scapegoat. And so once they've cast lots, and they've determined which one's the Lord's goat, then they kill the Lord's goat. But they don't confess their sins on it. And so this blood that's taken from that goat is considered sinless, right? Or pure blood. It didn't have any sins confessed over it. So then they take that blood and they go straight into, not the holy place, but straight into the most holy place. And that's the high priest and the high priest only that does that. And he takes that pure, innocent blood and he sprinkles it over the Ark of the Covenant which has the broken law of God in it, right? Because people have sinned, they've broken God's law, and now this pure blood which symbolizes the purity of Christ comes in and puts this over God's broken law. And then, once that's been accomplished, then the high priest comes out of the most holy place and he comes back and he places his hands on the scapegoat 
and he confesses all of the sins of Israel. And now all of those sins that were in the sanctuary are now taken out and they're symbolically placed on the scapegoat who is taken off into the wilderness. And that scapegoat is symbolizing Satan who is put out into that wilderness, that desolated earth for a thousand years. Right? And then he's ultimately destroyed. And so that's how the sanctuary is cleansed. Now, I want to talk about this picture of cleansing the sanctuary on the Day of Atonement for a moment. We see that the high priest goes into the most holy place, right? We see the law of God, which is the standard of the judgment. And right there in the most holy place, we see the angels, right? Those two cherubim that are over the mercy seat. Hopefully you still have your Bibles open to Daniel 7. Look with me back in Daniel 7, and let's look at verses 9 and 10 again. And let's see if we can see what we just talked about. Daniel 7, 9 and 10. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, and its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the book were open. Now let me ask you a question. Who are the thousands? Those are all of the angels, right? The Bible says in Revelation 5 verse 11, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures and the elders and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. Now, let me ask you a question. How many is 10,000 times 10,000? A lot, right? (laughs) Yeah, here we have a picture of billions of angels that are all here. And what we're seeing here is that these angels are, are just simply representing those billions of angels that are around the throne of God in this court scene. Now... The Bible says that the court was seated and the books were open. And then we have this scene on earth and then we're taken back to that scene in verse 13. Notice what it says. I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought Him near before Him. Now, when we look at that and we see that the Son of Man is coming in the clouds of heaven, what do we think of? We think of the second coming, don't we? But notice what it says, right? It says that He comes in the clouds of heaven, where? To the Ancient of Days, right? In other words, He's coming into the presence of the Father. Does that make sense? This is exactly what we see on that Day of Atonement. Jesus, the High Priest, is coming before the Father thousands and thousands and ten thousand times ten thousands of angels are there, right? This is exactly what we're seeing. This all was symbolizing a reality that is happening in heaven. You with me? All right. This is a powerful scene. And where does it happen? In heaven, right? 
Now, let me show you something in Hebrews 8, verse 1. It says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Remember that that earthly sanctuary was symbolic of that heavenly sanctuary. And the earthly symbols were symbolic of a very real reality that is happening in heaven. And it's given when we have that day of atonement, which is given as an earthly symbol of what would actually be realized in heaven in the courtroom scene. The true judgment in heaven. So where does that take place? In heaven, right? Here is an artist's rendition of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days on the Day of Atonement. Now, do you know what the Day of Atonement is to the Jews? I'd like you to notice what it says in the Jewish Encyclopedia in an article on the Day of Atonement. It says that it is God seated on His throne to judge the world at the same time judge, pleader, expert, and witness opens the book of records. On the Day of Atonement, it is sealed who will live and who will die. And so the Bible says that the Day of Atonement, that anyone who was not humbling themselves, anyone who was not searching their heart, afflicting their souls, that they would be cut off from their people. It was a day when those who were not in earnest with God were not going to continue. And I believe we are living in that very day now. That was symbolically pointing forward to a time that we are living in, and I want to show you that in a minute. As we prepare for the coming of Christ, it is time for us now to get earnest with God. Amen? Yep, the hour of His judgment has come. Notice what it says in the Encarta Encyclopedia. Yom Kippur, that's the Day of Atonement, is a day of confession, repentance, and prayers for forgiveness of sins committed during the year against the laws and the covenant of God. So remember, what was real and literal in the Old Testament is now spiritual and symbolic. So what we're seeing here is that we are living in this Day of Atonement. So what are we supposed to be doing? Confessing, repenting, praying, and asking for forgiveness of our sins committed during our lives, right? Now is the time for us to get our hearts right with Jesus. It is also the day on which an individual's fate for the ensuing year is thought to be sealed. In our case, that was real and literal, but for us, it's now the day or the life that we have in which our fate is going to be sealed when Christ comes. And so now is the time for us to surrender our heart to God. And so what we're seeing here is that the Day of Atonement was always seen as the Day of Judgment. They are perfect parallels in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel chapter 8. And I wish that we had more time to go through it slower so that we could really absorb it because there's so much here. But Daniel chapter 7's judgment is just a picture of Daniel chapters 8 cleansing of the sanctuary, both of which are described as overthrowing the little horn and bringing in the everlasting gospel and the kingdom, right? 
Here's a chart, and we've already looked at these things, but you can see the parallel between them. Now, let me ask you a question. When does the sanctuary get cleansed? We still haven't answered this question, have we? When is the judgment, or when does the sanctuary get cleansed? They're the same thing, and we have to answer the question so that we know when the judgment began, right? We want to know that. Notice in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, it says, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. What this means is that there has to be a timeline when the judgment would begin in, in this vision of the 2,300 days. What did we say that a day equals in Bible prophecy? A year. So what we're really talking here is about 2,300 years, right? And so we need to determine when that started. And it is a very long and very complicated study. And I don't have time to go into it, and I'm not even going to cover it in this seminar. Maybe later on we could do an actual study on the 2,300-day prophecy. But I'll tell you that there are two really good books that will help you understand it perfectly. One is 1844 Made Simple by Clifford Goldstein. And the other one is The Magnificent Disappointment by Mervyn Maxwell. And I'll just tell you this, that that 2300 years begins right in Daniel chapter 8. And you remember what happened before that? Medo-Persia came in and conquered Babylon, right? So the timeline starts with the time of Medo-Persia. And we could just round that off by history and we could say that that was the mid-400 B.C.s. And so that means 2,300 years later, that judgment or that cleansing of the sanctuary had to begin around mid-1800. And you can study that out and you can even narrow it down all the way down to 1844. And so that's when the judgment began. And they began with the dead. Right? They began with Adam and Eve, and they have been progressing since 1844, and they have been looking at the records of all those who are dead and determining who's saved and who's not. And eventually, I don't think very far off from now, they're going to get to the living. And once they get to judge the living, that has to happen real quick, doesn't it? Because that whole generation, there can't be anybody that dies when they do that that judgment on the living because they all have to be alive at that time when that judgment is. Otherwise, they'd be included with the dead. And so once that happens, it's going to happen very quickly. And so when is the time for us to get our hearts right with Jesus? Now. That's right. Absolutely. This is the time when our cases are being decided whether we are going to be innocent or guilty. And it's a time also when the truth would be restored. Remember that that, that uh, little horn power would cast truth to the ground, right? So we should see some very significant things through history when the truth is starting to be restored. And if you go back and you look, you'll find out that there was a great awakening in America right around 1844. That's when that truth started being restored. And we are living in that time right now. So we are in the 
anti-typical day of atonement. Now is the time for us to be examining our hearts, surrendering them to the Lord, and allowing Him to change us. Now let's talk for a minute about who is the accuser in the judgment. Well, we already know who that is, don't we? And so I'm not going to waste your time, but I'm going to give you a verse. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. You can go to there and you'll find out really quickly that that's Satan. But we already know that, don't we? So I'm just going to move on. Well, then the question is, who is the defense attorney? On the Day of Atonement, it was the high priest and the high priest only who went into the most holy place before God as the representative of the people and presented the blood of the sacrifice. And so Jesus Christ is our high priest in heaven and He is our representative there. So your record is there before God, but Christ is there as your advocate. Just like if you had to go to court here, you don't really have to go. You just send your attorney, right? And so Jesus is there. Notice what Leviticus 16 verse 30 says. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all of your sins before the Lord. In the same way, the Bible says in Hebrews 9.24, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ has entered there into the presence of God. And we saw that in Daniel, didn't we? When the, the Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days. And He is there on your behalf trying to obtain an innocent verdict for you. First John chapter 2, verse 1 says, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we have someone that is there in heaven standing by our side symbolically has our record and as we have an accuser he is there as our advocate that's Jesus he is the one who pleads our cause and we don't have to stand before the law alone right so let's ask a question what is the purpose of this judgment now, we already saw in Daniel chapter 7 that the purpose of the judgment was to overthrow the little horn, right? It makes it very clear there that in Daniel 7 is talking about the judgment. Now, why is this so important? Because we need to remember who is the power behind the little horn, right? The little horn is the Antichrist, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that his workings are according to the workings of Satan, right? In Daniel chapter 8, it says that he is mighty, but not by his own power. In Revelation 13, it says that the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And so the devil is using the Antichrist as a pawn to gain the worship that he's always wanted. And the devil's arguments are the ones that are being portrayed through the Antichrist. And so when the Antichrist is overthrown, it's not really the Antichrist that's the issue, but it's the controversy that began in heaven and has gone on all through this time and will ever be concluded by the judgment. 
right? The judgment is going to overthrow the accusations and the questions and the doubts about the goodness of God that the devil has been throwing out there for 7,000 years now. And this is powerful. You think about it. Remember that the sins were transferred into the sanctuary throughout the whole year, right? So what does that mean? Essentially, what that means is that God has been taking the blame for all of the sin problem for all of this time, right? How many times have you heard people say, well, it was an act of God, right, when some devastation comes? Or they say, well, why did God allow that? Or why did God do this, right? All of that blame is being placed squarely on the shoulders of God as those sins are piling up. And so God is the one who's had to bear that blame this whole time. But at the end of the judgment, at the end of the cleansing of the sanctuary, Jesus, our high priest, is going to come out of that judgment. He's going to put on His kingly robes. He's going to come back to this earth and He's going to grab a hold of Satan and He's going to lead him off into the wilderness for a thousand years, right? And all of the blame for all of the sin problem is rightly going to be placed where it belongs, on the devil himself. Now, I want to show you something here. Turn with me to Psalm 51. That's going to be page 652 of that seminar Bible. But when this judgment is over, the universe will know that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all right now let me show you this psalm 51 page 652 psalm 51 and notice what it says in verse 4 against you you only have i sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you what judge The ultimate overarching purpose of the judgment is not just for you and I to be cleared of sin, but more importantly, it is to clear God of all of the accusations of the devil. Right? Here God is going to forever be vindicated. He's going to be found blameless when He judges. So let me show you something that Paul quotes Uh, a little bit differently here in Romans 3, verse 3 and 4. He says, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Now that you is not talking about you and me, it's talking about God. Right, That God is going to overcome when He is judged. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. God really, you know, He's being judged, but God is sovereign, right? No one is going to tell God that He's guilty or innocent. But God is going to be vindicated in the minds of all of His creation through the judgment. And forever the blame is going to be placed on the scapegoat at the end of the judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9 says, We have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. 
There's a reason that all of those angels were gathered together. That thousand and thousand and ten thousand times ten thousand, they're all gathered around the Ancient of Days and they are staring down at the books and they are forever having their questions and their doubts and anything that they don't understand explained and the universe is going to understand that God is right. That His judgments are right. The judgment is going to overthrow the arguments of the devil forever. Now, let me say something to this. All of the principalities and powers in the universe are interested in these findings. In Ephesians chapter 3, it talks about the mystery of God being revealed to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. They are still learning the manifold wisdom of God, but the judgment is not for God. God doesn't need 10 minutes for a judgment. He doesn't need 150 years. God doesn't need a second to determine who's righteous and who's not. The judgment is not for God, but it's for all of His creation so that they can see that God is righteous. Judgment is for the onlooking universe. It's so that all of His creation can see that this whole sin problem is not His fault. Right? Now, remember what it says in Revelation 15? Just and true are your ways, O Lord, for your judgments have been manifested and they have been made known. God doesn't hide things in a bottle. God doesn't say, I'm God and you just need to trust me. But God is going to lay before the entire universe every decision that He's ever made so that everyone can see that everything He did was absolutely right. He wants all of His creation to know and He wants us to love Him rather than fear Him, right? And that plan is being played out. And notice what's going to be judged here. Notice this guy. He's got this fish symbol, meaning he's a Christian, right? And then he's got this bumper sticker that says, back off. And uh, I don't know if you can read it or not, but a license plate that says, I'm bad. You know, those are pretty conflicting signs, aren't they? But all of that is going to be sorted out. God is going to determine whether or not our profession is just a profession or is it true? Are we just nominal Christians in name only? Or have we truly submitted ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ? That truth is going to be revealed. And it's going to be determined in that judgment. Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Remember what Jesus said? John 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Right? So what is the will of God? To keep His commandments. And what is the standard of the judgment? The commandments. So how do we feel about the judgment? Well, that sort of depends, doesn't it? On whether you're guilty or innocent. Whether you've surrendered your heart to the Lord or not. Whether you're a Christian in name only, or is there evidence, is there fruit of a changed life? Right? It depends on you. 
It depends on your actions, your words, your thoughts, your motives, everything that you have done. But there's going to be a difference between people at the end of time. And the question is, have we committed our lives to the defense attorney who's never lost a case? Yeah. We can be secure in the judgment if we do that, can't we? Remember, the Bible says that the judgment was what? Made in favor of the saints of the Most High. The purpose of the judgment is not for God to see how many people He can keep out of heaven. But the purpose is to see how many He can get in. Right? Matthew 10.32 says, Therefore, whoever confesses Me before men, him I will also confess before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies Me before men, him I will also deny before My Father who is in heaven. Friends, is Jesus Christ the authority in your life? Have you submitted to Him as Lord and Savior? Has His will become your will? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus makes intercession for us. What are we doing for Him? Friends, let me tell you something. Intercession is done for someone who has fallen. Right? But when we think of Jesus as our intercessor, how do we picture Him? I think the way that we normally picture Him is like this. We are between Him and the Father, and He is pleading with the Father to forgive us, right? But I don't think that's an accurate picture. I think it's like this. Jesus is pleading with us, get your heart right with the Father. Amen? He is interceding on our behalf, but He's interceding with us. He's pleading with us to surrender our hearts to Him. You remember the story of the thief hanging on the cross? And you remember what he said. When everyone was reviling Jesus, when everyone was telling Him, if you're the Christ, come down from the cross, save yourself and save us also. There was one man in that entire crowd that saw the beauty of the character of Jesus. He saw that He was an innocent man. And what did He say to him? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice that that man didn't even ask for forgiveness. You know what his greatest concern was? His greatest concern was that Jesus would be proven innocent. He was more concerned about the vindication of God than he was about his own salvation. And Jesus saw that in that man. And he saved him. What about us? Are we concerned about our own salvation? Or are we more concerned about the vindication of God? That He would be shown righteous and perfect no matter what? That's a heavy question to ask, isn't it? Friends, have you clearly seen from the study tonight that the judgment is already underway? The Bible's pretty clear that that judgment has to happen before Jesus comes back. And so now is the time for us to prepare for that day. And so I ask you, do you want to prepare? 
Do you want to surrender your heart to Jesus Christ? Ask Him to come into your life. Be your Lord and Savior. Forgive you of your sins. Be your advocate there in the heavenly sanctuary. When your name comes up, to stand beside your record and be your advocate. Is that the desire of your heart? If it is, let me see your hands. Praise God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We know that Jesus is on our side. But Lord, the question is, are we on Yours? Are we going to stand with You? Are we going to surrender our hearts to You? And are we going to be more concerned about You being shown righteous and holy and perfect? Are we more concerned about You being vindicated than we are about our own salvation? Lord, help us. Help us to give it all to You. To surrender it all to You in this anti-typical day of atonement. That, Lord, we would be afflicting our souls. That we would be examining our lives. That we would be searching and surrendering ourselves to You and allowing You to prepare us for that day. Lord, we want to receive the reward of the righteous We want to be able to stand at the brightness of Your coming. And that judgment happens before You come. And so, Lord, now is the time. And Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that hasn't surrendered their heart to You yet, our prayer is that they would do it now. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.